Welcome to our Rock City Church podcast. We are so excited to have you join us. Our desire is that you would listen with expectancy for what God wants to do in your life. We pray that you would encounter the mighty love of the Father and that you would be fired up for the more that He has for you. All right, well, welcome back, everybody. Uh, It's good to see all of you, and uh, thank you so much for being here. So uh, how many of you know that God is not a slacker? God is not a slacker. Let's say it. God is not a slacker. So uh, let's define slacker for a moment. Uh, Some of this I pulled from Wikipedia, which you can go read. There's, believe it or not, a whole page on what a slacker is. But the term slacker actually came from the early 20th century in an early war in Britain where there were Sudanese workers and fighters that felt powerless to affect any change in the community around them. And so what they did was they actually pulled back on their work and they stopped being engaged not only in the battle but in serving and working because they felt powerless. That's where the original term slacker came from. During World War I, the word slacker was commonly used to describe someone who was not participating in the war effort, specifically someone who avoided military service, and it was equivalent to a later term called a dodge drafter, all right? Some of you might remember that, baby boomers and older. Uh, They even had attempts to track down people that were disengaged from the fight, (coughs) which I didn't research it, but they were called slacker raids. I can only imagine what a slacker raid looked like. But it's happened in our past, so that you know. In 1940, Time Magazine quoted the U.S. Army on managing the military draft efficiently, and this was the quote, war is not going to wait while every slacker resorts to complaining and endless appeals to not be engaged in the fight in the battle. The term over time then shifted not, it shifted from just the war effort to actually the workplace. The term achieved renewed popularity following its use in 1985, the film Back to the Future, in which Mr. Strickland chronically refers to Marty McFly, his father George McFly, and a group of teenage delinquents as slackers. I I like that because I was the classic slacker in the 80s. In fact, my friends and I called each other slackers all the time. We were like, what's up, slacker? (laughs) Yeah. Slacker became widely used in the 90s to refer to a type of apathetic youth that were cynical and uninterested in political or social causes and as a stereotype for members of Generation X. That's me. So I, I was the quintessential Generation X slacker. In fact, my uh, final paper in college was on Generation X. If you want to know anything about Generation X, I can tell you. I had to write like a thousand pages on Generation X. So the term has connotations of apathy and aimlessness. It's also used to refer to people that actually are educated but they avoid work. Uh, Some of them can be anti-materialistic, but most are viewed as underachievers. 
I was totally a slacker when it came to work in my late teenage years and my young adult years. It wasn't that my dad didn't try to teach me a work ethic. He taught me to do chores. He taught me to work hard for the things that I wanted. I received an allowance. I lived on uh, 31 acres in Kansas City, Missouri, actually a town, Excelsior Springs, Missouri. And the actual house sat on an acre and a half with 175 oak trees. And back then, I would have to rake all of the leaves by hand. Okay, no blower, no mulcher, rake them by hand, throw them into the back of the pickup truck, take them down to the creek bed. And so my dad really attempted to teach me how to have a good work ethic. And I will tell you that later on in life, when I woke up spiritually, I'm thankful for what he taught me because I learned a lot. But the challenge was I didn't have really good supervision. He was a single dad. My mom and my dad were separated. My mom lived in Miami. My dad lived in Kansas City. And neither of them really held me accountable, both baby boomers. And it, I was living in the 80s. If anybody lived in the 80s, the 80s was a crazy, insane time of rebellion. Okay? And so... Uh, my teenage years, I was in Kansas City, and then I would go to Miami during the summer to visit my mom. I was introduced to getting drunk and getting high at the age of 14, and I took my first hit of LSD when I was 15, okay? My father busted me with pot on countless occasions between the ages of 14 and 16, but he was clueless. I would lie. I'd say it's somebody else's or whatever, and I'd get in trouble for a short time, and I just, I had this thing inside of me of carnality and recklessness and rebellion that needed to die, and I was not born again at the time, so that you know. And so I would begin dealing a small amount of pot to make some extra money on the side, all while lying to my dad that I was taking odds and ends jobs landscaping to make money on the side. And as long as my grades were up, and as long as I was involved in sports and excelled in sports, everything was good. Can anybody relate? Success was measured based on how I did in school, which a lot of times I applied myself really hard so I could just make the good grades so that I could be rewarded because my dad would pay me for good grades. What was instilled into me early on, especially being abandoned by my blood father when I was a child, was this sense of measuring up and performing to be successful. And all the while, I lived a double standard con man life. And my dad really didn't know what to do. I look back and I feel bad for him, and I feel bad for my mom. Um, during one of my frequent trips to Miami in the summer times, in the 80s, I was free to party, drink, smoke, do drugs, sleep around. My mom loved me deeply, but she had no concept of the crazy world that I was living in privately. I had little to no accountability, supervision, or consequences for my actions. And aside from several misdemeanor busts for pot and alcohol, which was a slap on the wrist for me, I was always free to do whatever I wanted to do, okay? Back in Kansas City, I would begin dealing uh, more pot and uh, I would begin to engage in this double standard life. Now, I'm telling you this story because, one, I'm telling on my own self. I've told on it many times. 
I tell it myself all the time, but it's part of my story. There's no shame. I, I don't have regrets. Looking back, I wish that my life could have been different in a lot of ways because I see my children, I see you, I see this church, and I wish so much I would have had that in my childhood, okay? But my story resonates with so many people's story, not everybody. It doesn't even remotely resonate with my wife's story or Jeremy's story, right? Or maybe even Jordan's story in some ways. But it's who I am. And, you know, this church isn't specifically designed to reach ex-drug addicts and gangsters and strippers, but we have a real niche to reach the outcasts and the hardcore and the hurting and the broken. But we reach everybody, Um, and that's by design. That's the way the kingdom should be. It's a holistic community. And so uh, during one of my summer trips to Miami, and I don't remember the year, the years of Scarface is what I call it, 1985, 1986. I met some Cuban friends who were dealing large amounts of cocaine from Cuba and Colombia. And it was from this place I'd begin a much larger scheme of dealing drugs back at home in Kansas City because uh, it would sell for so much more money. Now, you have to realize I was in high school, okay, to put it into perspective for you. Eventually, I would move to Miami after graduating high school to attend community college, and I would continue dealing pot while waiting tables to cover up my income that I was making from dealing drugs. Eventually, I'd find a family of people I loved and cherished within the Grateful Dead community. With psychedelic drugs in plenty, I would begin a long, strange trip of traveling to shows around the United States, buying, doing, and selling even more drugs to fuel my expeditions. In 1992, I voted for Democrat Bill Clinton. And I organized a large anti-war drum circle in Coconut Grove to protest everything that happened in Desert Storm. Just so you can see how good Jesus is today, right? I was a deadhead, and I was a quintessential Generation X slacker. So I understand the term well. It wasn't until I went to prison and came to know Jesus, that everything changed for me. When I said yes to Jesus, it was the inner working of the Holy Spirit that transformed this once slacker into a fruitful son, husband, and father today. Let me remind you of a few key terms used to define a slacker. Aimless, no work ethic, lazy, uninterested, apathetic, underachiever. Little drive, little ambition, and really a whole lot of self-focus and selfish ambition. But the one of all the definitions that impacts me the most when I think about it today is someone who's not participating in the war effort, specifically someone who avoids military service. And I'm thankful for everybody in the military, just so that you know. I may not agree with every war, but I support our military. And I support those that make the decision to enlist and support our great nation and have chosen to fight for our freedoms because freedom never was free. Somebody always paid a price, and the ultimate person that paid the price was Jesus. 
but I'm actually specifically referring to a spiritual war for our souls, for the souls of our neighbors, for the soul of our city, and the soul of our nation. Recently, somebody talked to me about this whole nationalism mindset, that Christians should not be nationalists, and that the Pledge of Allegiance even is a error for Christians because we should never be pledging allegiance to a flag or to a country. I would like to say that I wholeheartedly disagree with that statement because we have to understand that God desires to save nations. This nation was founded on godly principles, even though there was sin rooted in, the, in so many places, even in the founding uh, of our nation, which is why God puts us on earth. I believe the intent in the heart of the Constitution and the intent of the heart of this great nation, which had never been done before, was rooted and founded on godly intent and godly principles. And from the time of the Constitution and, or, until today, our country, maybe not in the last few years, but our country has only gotten better. And I actually think that it has gotten better, except that things are being exposed that need to get dealt with. Right. Okay? So I'm not a nationalist in the context that my whole life's mission is to fight for a nation. My whole life's mission is to be like Jesus and reflect him and to preach the gospel and to save the hearts of men and women everywhere that I encounter them so that in turn, we can save a nation. Does that make sense? All right. So... None of us can afford to be slack concerning the promises of God for these things. Why? Because God is not a slacker. God is not a slacker. And if he's living in us, then none of us can be slackers in any area of our lives, ever. From our work and our finances, to our marriages and our children, from our time in the secret place and building a strong relationship with God, to advancing the kingdom in the lives of others, none of us can ever afford to be slackers. From fighting for biblical laws to be passed and unbiblical laws to be shot down and repealed, from disengaging from the worldly mindset in our own hearts to engaging in every area of society that affects positive change in our local community. In the early days of the founding of our nation, the fight was always fought on a local level. The communities and the cities banded together to fight for their immediate areas that they lived in. And there was very little federal involvement or federal control. I believe that we have a responsibility to fight for our city. And I believe that when you win local communities and local cities, you win nations. I believe when you win your neighbor and one city block at a time, you save entire communities. And I'm on a mission to do that. And that is a big part of my life mission and a big part of the mission of this church, that we actively reflect Christ, that we equip the family, that we advance the kingdom, and that we love our community. That's our mission statement. Amen. It's to be real, to be authentic. And that means that we have to be involved from the city council to the school district to building relationships with county judges and mayors to voting, to getting involved on commissions. You can't sit back idly, complain about what's happening in our nation and not do something locally. And I'll lead the way. And I, I get it. Not everybody's going to do the same thing, but we can all do our part.
one of the people that I like listening to the most, you know, if you're listening to anything politically or podcasts or looking for somebody that is of a sound mind and reasonable that I really like is David Barton from Wall Builders. I highly recommend you're listening to everything that he has to say. I thoroughly, thoroughly like him and enjoy him. And when it comes to understanding the founding of our nation, when it comes to understanding the mission of the gospel, when it comes to understanding the role of the believer, and when it comes to fighting on a local level, man, this guy gets me so fired up. So we all should be doing our part to fight. And really, the fight happens behind closed doors. The fight happens when no one's looking. The fight happens in how you treat your spouse. The fight happens in how you teach your children to be on fire for the Lord. I have lots of great conversations with my kids. Again, they're six and eight. They don't understand everything that I say, but my wife's listening in the other room, giggling and laughing at the things I'm telling them. But we have these crazy conversations. They're not really crazy, but they're six and eight. So like the other day, you know, we're sitting at the breakfast table. I found that, you know, breakfast times and evening times are great times for me to tell stories and bring Jesus into the story whether that's stories about my past and myself or biblical stories. It's actually both. And so we have this routine now where, you know, they love hearing stories about my past and about my life, how I got hurt, how I got chased by alligators, how I walked on water when a shark was chasing me. You know, I've swam with sharks. I've been chased by alligators. I've cut myself with knives. I broke my jaw, my arm. I mean, I've been like a lifetime of suffering. And they just like, tell me about a time you hurt yourself. Like they love those stories. <laughs> and, and there's, it's full. I try to bring adventure and wonder into my kids' lives and to bring the wonder of Christ. So the other day I said, Hey guys, do you know what conviction is? They're like, no, we don't know what conviction is. I said, well, convictions when, when you, f- you know you're not supposed to do something or you feel bad about doing something and you feel convicted. It's like, you know, you shouldn't do it. Like, let me give you an example. You know, when your dad was young, he was pretty poor. He didn't have a lot of money. And after school, I would go to the gas station across the street from the school and I really wanted a pack of gum, but I didn't have any money. And so I took that pack of gum, I put it in my pocket and I stole it and I walked out and my kids are like, oh my God stole a pack of gum? I'm like, yeah, I stole a pack of gum. I said, do you know why I stole that pack of gum? No, daddy, we don't know why. Because I had no conviction and I was tempted. Do you know what temptation is? So I'm teaching my kids. No, we don't know what temptation is. I said, see, without the Holy Spirit inside your life, when you're tempted to do something you shouldn't do, because I can teach you right from wrong, but what you really need is the voice of God inside of you to be convicted, right? And I tell them that story about three, four times in a row, to, and I quiz them. Hey, guys, do you remember what conviction is? Yeah, it's when you, know, when, you know you, when you do something when you know you shouldn't do something. Those are six and eight. How many times will I teach them about temptation and convictions and being spirit-led? All their entire life, right? And so... Another quick story, uh, you know, <clears throat> my kids, we have kids, my family and kids come to the second service, and, you know, I, the number one reason why teenagers typically come to church is because their friends are here. If they make friends, it's, they're hooked. 
right? I mean, if you do the research of why kids go to youth group, it's always because if their friends go there, typically. You start roping in friends, you start really blooming and blossoming, and all of a sudden, you got a whole army of kids that are first probably not coming because they really want to know the Lord, but become because of the relationships. And that's why I'll say something even for us as adults. People will come here for the experience, but they'll stay for the relationships. And that's why a lot of people come, they get, they get moved by the Spirit, they get touched, they get impacted, there's more, it's aggressive. It's, you know, we're going after the things of the Spirit and they're having encounters. Like, this is what I've always wanted, but three months, six months later, if they don't get into relationship with other people, they're not gonna stay because relationships is what it's ultimately about. That's why we all have to work extra hard to build relationships in this church without it being programmed and micromanaged. It's not a corporate church, it's family. So we all need to take extra steps to work hard. Even if it doesn't seem fun or you don't wanna go, God sees the sacrifices and God can connect you with somebody when you least expect it. When you didn't wanna go to the men's group, but God was telling you you're supposed to go. When you didn't wanna come to the women's flourish fellowship, but God says, no, I want you to go. And you worked 65 hours and Saturday morning's your only time off, I get it. But I also know everything is a sacrifice and your spiritual life is way more important than anything else. And then God knows how to divinely network and connect his kingdom. So I'm not going to network per se, but it's gonna be at that one time that you show up that God's gonna connect you with that one person that has exactly what you need when you needed it the most. That's why you have to keep showing up. And that was my life before I ever became a pastor, was years and years and years of showing up. In my young adult years, in my 30s, showing up, being faithful. And God, when I showed up, God always showed up, okay? And so we all have to do our parts, and we all have to understand that people will see not only does God not want us to be a slacker, you have to realize that people are gonna see God as a slacker. So one of the reasons why I'm telling you God's not a slacker is because there's an entire chapter dedicated to the fact that God's not a slacker in the Bible. We're gonna read it. God's not a slacker, but people think he's slacking. Look at the turmoil and the chaos in the world around us. The underlying question in so many people's minds is why would God allow this to happen? Fill in the blank. From the election to all the dis. Uh, dysfunction in our society, pedophiles. I mean, that's probably my biggest one, way more than even the election. Injustices to children, nothing makes, me, makes my skin crawler makes me angrier than an injustice done to a child, okay? And so the underlying question in so many people's mind is if God really was good, then why did this happen? Or if God's in control, then how could God allow X, Y, and Z to happen? So people will call God a slacker, They'll accuse him of not doing his part and being disengaged to not being present or even existing, with the big one being that he's not coming back and there's not going to be a day of the Lord. Now, several weeks ago, I taught you about Zephaniah. I loved that message. If you did not get to hear the message about the remnant church, as in the days of Zephaniah, I would really like to ask you to go back and listen to it. Zephaniah, uh, a prophet during the days of Josiah, 
which I believe are very similar to the days that we're living in. It was probably even worse then, believe it or not, than it is now. But Zephaniah prophesies the day of the Lord, and he specifically speaks first to Jerusalem, then to the nations and Jerusalem, and then back to Jerusalem, and then bringing God's comfort and strength after the day of the Lord, which brings purification to the nations and then ultimately brings the nations together in unity. So I know from a biblical standpoint, this nation belongs to the Lord. I know that. Now, how God's going to do it and the way it's going to happen, it's not going to be pretty for a lot of people. But we got to fight hard to save those people. So the very enemies and the ones you hate, he's waiting to come back so that they could be saved. It's the only reason why he's waiting to come back, so that you know. We got one promise in the Bible that says if God hasn't come back yet, it's for a reason. And that reason is to save the nations from an impending doom of destruction and fire. That's not going to be a good thing. Now, that's not a popular message to talk about on a Sunday morning. Doom, destruction, hellfire coming. Everything's going to burn up. It's not going to flood like it did in the days of Noah. It's going to be burned up, and everything's going to melt and wax away. And the ungodly that didn't repent, we're not a universalist church, and God's not a universalist God. You understand? And so if you don't get this sense of urgency inside of you, you'd just be, you'll be a slacker too. Because what's there to fight for? If everybody's saved and they just don't know it, what are we going to fight for? I'm fighting to rescue people. Yes. We all have to fight to rescue children. I mean, yes. if you're going to really think about it, think about children. Yeah. Yeah. See, my kids at six and eight, if I don't fight to rescue them now right. while they're safe in my home, right. I'll have to fight to rescue them in another way later in life. Yeah. And that could still happen, but I pray it won't. And so I'm going to train a child in the way they should go. You got a new baby. You should be fighting hard for your children, your family, and your future so that they can not just have what we never had. That's not our standard. Our standard is so that they could be like the father. If you have this vow and judgment in your heart that says, I never want to be like my parents were, that may be noble, but that's not your measuring standard. Yeah, it's good. Don't make that your vow. If you're going to have a vow, make it to be like him. Yes. I want to be the way he is. Because you could still not be like them and still be bad. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. So let's look at the scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 through 18. Now I want to remind everybody that I thoroughly enjoy the Passion Translation and I already know there's stuff out there, dog, in the Passion Translation saying it's not a legitimate translation. Um, I would disagree with that. But I would also say to you, uh, it's probably more of a teaching paraphrase like a pastor would when we break the word down. And I always compare it to other versions that I've been reading my entire life. One of the great things about Bible Gateway online is that you can parallel Bible. You can bring them both up at the... You can actually bring three and four versions up at the same time. And so remember, this is a church that must study to show itself approved. Yes. Please, we're, I've said this so many times. You cannot afford to not spend time in the Bible. 
I read my Bible all the time. Not so that I can give you a message. I read it so that I can understand it so that when God says, preach this topic, I'm ready. All right? And so, and I also want to know him. I read the Bible to discover Jesus in the midst of it all. So we're going to read from the Passion Translation because it breaks it down in such an easy way for us all to understand, and I can cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Okay? So let's read together. And I'll break it down as we go. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, mockers will multiply chasing after their evil desires. Does anybody feel like we're in those days? Okay, a mocker can be defined as a deceiver, a complainer. A mocker could even be described as a slacker. And so these are the type of people that are chasing after their own evil desires or their own lusts. It's selfish ambition at its finest. Don't just think pornography and human trafficking and greed. Those can all be a part of it. Chasing after your own evil desires could simply be trying to get your own notoriety and recognition, and this is all about you and not about him. It can be very, very subtle. Positions, titles, notoriety, fame, that all has to die. It feels good to be known. It feels good to have notoriety and be recognized. But if that doesn't come first from the Lord then your strength and the kingdom you will build will be on the recognition and notoriety of other people. So then what happens when you don't get it? Take it from somebody who was raised as a man pleaser. If somebody didn't acknowledge me, recognize me, or I didn't win or get the first place medal in pole vaulting and wrestling, and you know, if I wasn't successful in everything that I did according to my own ways, I didn't feel valued. And that's the problem. Your value is not on what you do. Your value is on who you are. In fact, it's been a while since we've said this, but it's a core, core foundational truth of Rock City. So let's say it together. Let's say this. Say, I'm not what I do. I do what I am. If you don't understand that statement, then you're going you're gonna to get your self-esteem needs met based on what you do, and you're going to find your value based on what you do. So then when you don't get recognized, or if a position gets taken away, or you don't get promoted... What happens? I don't feel valued, and my core foundation has been on what I'm doing instead of who I am. It's from the position of who you are that you do what you do. Verse 4, they're going to say, so what about the promise of his coming? Our ancestors are dead and buried, yet everything's still the same as it was since from the beginning of time until now. Nothing's changed. In fact, it's only getting worse. So who cares? The Lord's not coming. In fact, many people will go from this place all the way to atheism or agnosticism. God's not coming. God doesn't care. He's disengaged. He's not active. He's not present. He's a slacker. Verse five, but they conveniently overlook that from the beginning, the heavens and the earth were created by God's word. They conveniently overlook the fact that God spoke and the dry ground separated from the waters. Then long afterward, he destroyed the world with a tremendous flood by those very waters. And now by the same powerful word, the heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for judgment day. When all the ungodly will perish. 
This is in the Bible. I can't cut this out. There's a fire coming. There's a judgment day coming. There's a day of the Lord coming. Now, when I taught on Zephaniah and about the remnant church, I said one really powerful statement. God doesn't want to destroy. He wants to purify. And the ultimate purpose of the consuming fire of God is to purify. But those that continue to reject all the way until that day and live their own lives with their own selfish and evil, wicked desires are going to perish. Verse 8, so, dear friends, don't let this one thing escape your notice. A single day counts like a thousand years for the Lord, Yahweh, and a thousand years counts as one day. This means that, contrary to man's perspective, the Lord's not late or he's not slack concerning his promise to return, as some measure lateness. But rather, his delay simply reveals something. What's it reveal? This is who God is. He's lovingly patient. The thing is, I talk about fire and I talk about the judgment day and people get so hung up on that negative truth. And really, it's, it can seem like a negative truth, but it's only out of a place of perfect love that God would ever even have a consequence. I, I, there's consequences for my kids because I love them. Do you understand that? If I didn't discipline my kids, they'd be illegitimate. His delay reveals his loving patience towards you because he doesn't want anybody to perish, but he wants everybody to change the way that they think, live, act, and love. The day of the Lord will come and take everyone by surprise. So we talked a lot about the day of the Lord when we talked about Zephaniah. The day of the Lord will come and take everyone by surprise, as unexpected as a home invasion. The atmosphere will be set on fire and vanish with a horrific roar, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as in a tremendous blaze. The earth and every activity of man will be laid bare. Since all these things are on the verge of being dismantled, don't you see how vital it is to live a holy life? Let me just say something about that. Everything's on the verge of being dismantled. Can you feel it? There's a dismantling going on. And I understand there's so many people really frustrated about the election, and there's half of this nation and maybe many people even here that are excited about how the election went. But I want to say, regardless, everything's on the verge of being dismantled. This was written thousands of years ago. It's even more so today. One day is as a thousand with the Lord. The way God sees things, he's outside of the span of space and time. Okay? He's not limited by time the way we're limited by time. And so one day is a thousand. And the premise here is that God has made a promise and he's not a slacker. He's not lazy. He's not checked out. He's not more concerned with another cosmos or dealing with aliens on another universe, whatever it is that people will teach and say. But subconsciously and subtly, so many people can think and believe that God is a slacker but he's not. Biblically, God makes it extremely clear that all things are on the verge of being dismantled. He's patient for a reason. He doesn't want anybody to perish. Even our enemies, the Bible says when we are at peace with the Lord and when we live uprightly and holy, guess what he does with our enemies? 
He makes them at peace with us. And he deals with them. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. So what's our, what is our requirement? Don't you see how vital it is to live a holy life? We must be consumed with godliness while we anticipate and help to speed up the coming of the day of the Lord. Did you guys catch that? I know people that are like, rapture, ready, now. They're like, push the button. They're like, How, come on, nuclear war. Let's get out of here. I'm done, okay? But here's what I want to say to you. I'm not that way. You know why? Because your aunt, your uncle, your grandma, your grandpa, your dad, your mom, your grandkids, your coworker, your neighbor, all those people you know that don't know Jesus the way we know him, that are not born again are going to perish. And that creates an urgency inside of my heart that says, Lord, I don't want, I'm not out to just live in this utopia thing yet. I want, I want to save people now on earth as it is in heaven. And there's an urgency, should be an urgency inside of us. The apostle Paul said it well. He's like, I'm yearning and longing and desiring for the return of the Lord. But until that day comes, we have the Holy Spirit as a guarantor. I'm longing to be with him, the Apostle Paul said. We should all have that longing. I get that understanding. But until that time happens, we have to understand why it hasn't happened. But guess what? If you want it to happen, you can speed up the coming of the day of the Lord. We can speed it up. How can we speed it up? how we pray, how we love, how we live, how we rescue, how we fight. We cannot live our lives unto ourselves. I'm thankful for my little piece of land, all my petting zoo animals, my wife and my kids. I really like my black vinyl farm fence. But let me tell you something, none of that is, has a hold on me or is my priority in my life. My priority is relationships, family, community, and building something that will last the generations for your children, my children, and our grandchildren, and our grandchildren's children. And to awaken them to fight right, because if any of us here die before Jesus comes back, can you imagine what the generations are going to face that are coming up behind us? You think it's bad now? The Bible makes it clear that from a worldly standpoint, it will only wax worse. But from a kingdom standpoint, it only becomes more awakened and more vibrant and more alive. So all of us should be vibrant, awakened, and alive. We should be living holy lives. You know, I posted this thing on Facebook. It's a prerequisite to seeing the Lord. It's Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people and live a life of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then we have the scripture in the Old Testament, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And I used to read that wrong. God spoke to me about that. Man, I'm never going to get up that mountain because my hands are so dirty and my heart is so wicked. God says, no, no, no. Think of climbing the biggest mountain. If you ever research climbing Mount Everest or Pike's Peak, there's stages. There's, you wear different things. You track different things. You bring different types of camping gear. I mean, as you move up higher up the mountain, you have to be more equipped and more ready and more prepared. And so there's this process with the Lord. He says, start your journey. 
In the Old Testament, you couldn't even touch the mountain. In the New Testament, God says, we haven't come to a mountain that can't be touched, but we've come to the mountain of the living God, where all can ascend the hill of the Lord. Why? Because you have the cross, you have the blood of Jesus. They didn't have that when David wrote in the Psalms. So now you get the righteousness of God through the cross and the blood that he shed to wash you and wash you clean. So pick yourself up and keep going. And when I challenge people to live holy and to live upright, so you have to think about holiness. Holiness means to be separated from the world. Holiness is not purity. Purity is purity. Holiness means that I'm called to live a consecrated, separated life from this world. And in turn, through the blood of Jesus, he makes me clean and washes me and brings me to the place of purity. So we have to pursue peace with all people. All things are on the verge, go back to verse 11, on the verge of being dismantled. Don't you see how vital it is to live a holy life? We have to be consumed with godliness, anticipate and help speed up the coming of the day of the Lord. Everything's gonna be set ablaze, verse 13. But as we wait and trust in God's royal proclamation to be fulfilled, there are coming heavens new in quality and in earth in new quantity, quality where righteous will be fully at home. There's a new heaven and an earth coming. Verse 14, so my beloved friends, with all you have to look forward to, may you be eager to be found living pure lives when you come into his presence without blemish and filled with peace. And keep in mind that our Lord's extraordinary patience simply means more opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you. God's patience creates opportunity for salvation. That's our mission now. Yes, I'll fight for our community. Yes, I'll get involved. Yes, I'll build relationships. Yes, I'll fight for our nation. But I'm ready to start having straightforward conversations with people that need Jesus. I sat in front of a high political influencer recently. This is like two weeks ago. A very, I'm not gonna say who the person is. But this person is very high up politically. And I looked that person right in the eyes and said, Where, where's your relationship with God? Where are you spiritually? I'm thankful that you want to build a relationship, especially politically, but I care about your soul. And that person appreciated that conversation so much he couldn't stop thanking me enough because few people will actually look at somebody and say, I care about you personally. How's your heart? How's your soul? And are you born again? So there's an opportunity for salvation. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9 one more time. I'm going to show it to you in the King James, New King James. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not a slacker. He's not lazy. He's not distracted. He's not aimless. He's not disinterested. He didn't spin the world like a top and then check out until it stops. No, God is an ever-present help in the time of trouble. He's forbearing, he's patient, he's loving and kind, he's caring and giving, he consoles and he comforts, he strengthens and equips, he trains, fights, and sends us into the fight. He loves perfectly and teaches us to love perfectly. He forgives all of our sins so that we can forgive the sins of others. He talks to us so that he can talk through us to others. He screams out through his creation. 
He's a singer-songwriter that sings over us with rejoicing. He put a new song in our mouths. He's the lover of lovers, the friend of friends, the brother of brothers, the father of fathers, and the king of kings. He's the crucified one, the risen one, and the living one. He's the all-consuming fire that sets our hearts ablaze so that we can love like him, look like him, sound like him, and be like him to a broken, lost, and dying world. And our prerequisites, to live a holy life, to be consumed with godliness, to grow and increase in God's grace and intimacy, to live at peace with all men, and to trust him. So don't be a slacker, because God's not a slacker. And God's going to do what he said he'd do. We got a job to do, people. Get your focus in the right spot. Intimacy, godliness, righteousness, family, community. No, stop gossiping. Stop backstabbing. Know the things that God hates. Hate those things and love the things that God loves. God's going to do what he said he'd do. Now I want to speak encouragement to all of you. Those of you that are frustrated, downcast, going through hardship, whether it's your finances, frustrated with what's happening in the world around us, we are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And God will always take care of his sons and daughters just like you would take care of yours. If you love your children deeply, God has an even greater love for you. If he's not come back, which he hasn't, he's waiting so that people could be saved and that people would come to repent and to know him. Be bright, shining lights. Live your life holy. Pursue peace with all people. Be confident and be bold. Be difference makers by getting involved in the right way speaking life and truth and health and boldness. Instead of tearing down, we build up and we trust God to do what God does best. And so just like my life was once a slacker, if any of you are struggling with those things, drugs, alcohol, being a con man, living a double life, not being engaged, focused on yourself, I want to pray for you today. I want to pray that you wouldn't continue to be a slacker and that God would change your life by putting his spirit inside of you and that you'd be born again and that you would trust him, know him, and truly become a son, not an orphan. All right? So let's all stand and pray for you. Thank you, Lord, for houses and homes ablaze to love our neighbor as ourself. And thank you, God, for awakening us to our destiny here in this city, this time. May we bend to your will, God, for everybody here that was once like me, and even those that aren't, Lord, I pray that we would all lay our lives down and give it all to you. Let's just pray this together. Lord, I surrender my life and I surrender my will to yours. Lord, I know you're not a slacker. I know you have a plan a purpose to rescue and save those that don't know you just as you're saving me. Help me to see the way you see, Lord. Help me to love the way you love and have mercy on my life, God, in all the areas I haven't. Thank you that you're patient. Thank you that you're kind. Thank you for your forbearance. And now, Father, I thank you for everybody that has been watching and everybody that's here. Thank you for their lives, Lord. And thank you that there's an urgency in all of us 
to keep our eyes on you and to climb the mountain of the Lord together with you and with one another. I bless all of you mightily with great peace and health and strength, wisdom in the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you want to partner with us in what God is doing here at Rock City, you can give by visiting our website at rockcitycorpus.com slash give.